On election day in 2016, Donald Trump carried Ohio by eight percentage points. Our guest today carried the state by 21. The junior senator from the Buckeye State, Rob Portman, on Uncommon Knowledge, now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. We're shooting today in Washington, D.C. After graduating from Dartmouth as a member of the class of 1978, Rob Portman took a law degree from the University of Michigan, practiced law for a time, and then went into politics. From 1993 to 2005, he served in the House of Representatives. From 2005 to 2006, he served as United States Trade Representative, and from 2006 to 2007 as Director of the Office of Management and the Budget, holding both positions under President George W. Bush. Rob Portman was elected to the Senate from Ohio in 2010 and then re-elected last year. Senator Portman, welcome. Peter, it's good to be on with you again. Something is happening. Two months ago, President Trump's approval rating, about 36%. In the generic ballot, Democrats led Republicans by about eight points. Today, President Trump's approval rating is up to the low 40s. In one recent poll, he touched 50% and the Democratic lead over Republicans has shrunk a couple of points. Now it's around four, five percentage points. Now, President Trump and the Republicans on the Hill are still underwater, but that's a, short, that's a sharp improvement. What accounts for it? I think it's very simple. I think it's that we started to get stuff done. And in particular, we got something done that people, as they learn more about it, uh, find to be great for them and their families, uh, their jobs, which is the tax bill. And I just spent a few days in Ohio talking to small businesses all over the state. We had a forum with uh, 12 brewers, uh, microbrewers, because uh, they have something particular in the tax bill they thought was helpful in terms of their, their low volume of craft beer. But what they really love about the tax bill is the expensing, the lower rates, the fact that they can now expand their facilities, they can now hire that extra person they needed. In one case, a brewer who had never been able to offer health care insurance is now offering health care insurance. Uh, I went to a small business where I got the opportunity to meet with some of the NFIB, National Federation of Independent Businesses, uh, represents a lot of small businesses around the country. Talked to a bunch of their uh, you know, members and same thing. I mean, story after story. Again, a woman who had not been able to offer health care since 2016 because of the very high cost, 22% increase for her. She, you know, is now able to offer health care to all of her full-time employees. But it's 401k contributions, um, it's pension contributions to defined benefit plans, it's higher pay. We've heard about the bonuses, and there are about 160 companies, uh, big multinational companies that have announced, you know, they're doing something that's, that's well-known about bonuses. Think of Walmart, for instance, our largest employer in Ohio. But what we don't hear about are these hundreds and even thousands of small businesses that are benefiting from this. On top of that, of course, individuals are seeing their paychecks change. And so despite the fact that Democrats and the media uh, tried to convince people this tax bill wasn't going to be good for them, uh, they're seeing not only is their employer doing more to help them, investing in them, or investing in equipment that allow them to be more productive, but also the individual tax relief of doubling the standard deduction, of doubling the child tax credit, their withholding has improved. So one guy told me uh, when I was explaining the tax, but you don't have to tell my employees about that. They're telling me about it. They're coming to say, hey, look, I got 40 more bucks on my paycheck every two weeks. And that adds up. It's about 2,000 bucks for a median income family in Ohio. 
And so, Peter, that is changing the dynamic, I think. Uh, of and you the, feel it. You're, yeah, you're I do. You're a working really politician do. and you feel it already. I feel it. Tax and by the way, the polling's right. even better than you indicate in some of these tough districts, including in California. Uh, you know, some districts that people thought were out of reach now for Republicans that Republicans have held for many years. And right. In some cases, have been some retirements, as you know. Uh, now those numbers are changing pretty significantly as, again, people are looking at their own situation, their family situation. And when you're living paycheck to paycheck, which is most of the people I represent, you know, 2,000 bucks a year is a big, big deal. And, and, and on top of that, again, the increased employment opportunities and so on. So it's working. Senator, Senator Nancy Pelosi, the ranking Democrat in the House of Representatives, referred to $1,000. Companies were giving $1,000 bonuses after the tax cut. She referred to $1,000 as chicken feed. And you're saying it actually matters? So I was at a, a small business recently, and uh, a guy who's kind of irreverent and not very politically correct uh, said in front of the, I was giving an interview, and he kind of put his head in and said, Nancy Pelosi says it's crumbs. We call it fine dining. <laughs> and his point was, you know, this is meaningful in people's lives. It right. may not be in, in hers, but it is in theirs. And uh, so, I, look, I, I think people, uh, the proof's in the paycheck. Formerly known as the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, the president signed it into law on December 22nd. This is all very recent. Just signed into law on December 22nd. You've named some of the provisions. Lowers the personal income tax rates in all seven brackets. Doubles the standard deduction for all married filers. Reduces the corporate tax rate from 31 to 35% to 21%. And caps the deductibility of state and local taxes at $10,000. Now. We're having this conversation in front of an audience that includes a number of Californians. You sit on the Finance Committee. Why have you made it impossible for these good people to deduct their state taxes? <laughs> you forgot about the New Yorkers who were here. I met a couple already today, yeah. Well, two things. One, uh, from a philosophical point of view, the idea here is you know, lower the rates by broadening the base. So yeah, there's tax relief in the legislation. Uh, roughly $1 trillion when you kind of net it out, when you assume you use the right baseline, which is a complicated way of saying it's about a trillion dollar tax cut over 10 years. But most of the relief, and you know, we're talking about four or five trillion dollars of tax relief, comes from getting rid of some of the preferences in the code. In other words, broadening the base of taxation, therefore lowering the rate, which uh, most economists, including uh, all five of those I mentioned earlier, uh, the Hoover Institution folks, think is the right thing to do, generally, that's directionally the right thing to do with tax right. reform. In that respect, uh, as, even as compared to the 1986 Act, this one is more fundamentally pro-growth. And of course, the biggest preference of all is the deduction for state and local taxes, or was under the previous code uh, until the end of last year. So that was an obvious place to look for broadening the base. It was about $1.3 trillion. And to take those rates down, the individual rates down we talked about, you know, required us to find places where you could reduce preferences. On the corporate side, there were more preferences to, to reduce. For instance, the Section 199 is gone for manufacturing, but taking the rate, you say, from 35 to 21 makes up for that. But on the individual side, most of it came from that one deduction. We also have a couple other deductions that are expensive, you know, if you look at it in terms of the revenue loss, but extremely important and helpful to the economy. One is the mortgage interest deduction. Right. And uh, there was talk about getting rid of that or lowering it. it. It was capped at a slightly lower amount, 750 instead of a million bucks. But that one would have had a really negative impact. People believed on housing. We want to encourage more home ownership as Republicans. Um, and then charitable. 
and probably a lot of people in this room weighed in on the charitable side, and the notion was there, again, as Republicans philosophically, uh, we want to encourage more charitable activity. We think that the private sector is sometimes much more effective at meeting the needs and, and addressing poverty. And then finally, philosophically, apart from what I just said about the general approach here, why should the federal government be subsidizing high-tax states? In other words, why should we at the federal level be providing this $1.3 trillion tax deduction? And by the way, the $10,000 is still significant for a lot of people. That's, that's 10,000 either state and local taxes or property taxes. And for people who are low middle income Americans, that's very significant. So, so there still is relief there, but can I, can I just- It's a philosophical difference. So, so um, you're going high, let me go low. Uh, it's already been the case that the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, is screaming to high heaven about the lost revenues to his state because New Yorkers will lose their deductibility and they're going to put pressure on Albany to reduce spending. Same thing is happening in Sacramento, the Democratic establishment, and it, does, it is an establishment and it does control the state, is already screaming because it feels political pressure, frankly, from many of its own people. Those folks who live in Malibu uh, are calling Sacramento. You sort of like it, don't you? Well, I, I, sort of like, I sort of like competition, you know? I mean, we often say that you know, we want to be sure that we have a tax code that's more competitive, which was what drove me, as you know, over the last dozen years to really push for tax reform so that we don't have a code that's making U.S. workers disadvantaged relative to foreign workers. But competition between the states is not a bad thing either, Peter. And I will tell you, it's 25,000 bucks on average, the deduction in New York County, as an example, Manhattan, for those of you from, from the city. Uh, that was the average. In Ohio, it's about 2,500 bucks. And, uh, you know, so yeah, I think there should be competition on this, on this issue. And by the way, for those Democrats who are complaining about it, and they are, and they're saying, I can't believe you've done this, as you can imagine, the state and local tax deduction, state and local property tax deduction, uh, is not, shall we say, progressive. In other words, it goes primarily to people who are wealthy by far. Right. In other words, more than 50% of it goes to people who make a significant income over 200,000 bucks a year or so. So it's interesting that Democrats who are always saying the code needs to be more progressive have chosen this place to make their stand because it's, it, it doesn't really work with their philosophy. So you do like it. You are enjoying this. Listen. I, I like good tax reform, honestly. So and I, you, I think you, this is going to grow the economy in ways that, and by the way, for those in the room who have expressed concerns about it, to me, and I, I get it, uh, they've also said, look, I also get it that the economy is improving all around me, and we all benefit from that. Every single American benefits from lower unemployment, higher wages, uh, a higher stock market, the things that result from a better and a growing economy. I'm struck again that the president just signed this darn thing on December 22nd. This is all very recent, and here you are, a working politician who's just flown in from his state saying, on the ground, I see a difference. It's already happening. It's all already right, happening. Paul Krugman, economist, or some would say former economist, Paul Krugman in a column in the New York Times, and this column was entitled A Permanent Slump. Quote, the evidence suggests that we have become an economy whose normal state, this is the new normal, whose normal state is one of mild depression with brief episodes of prosperity that occur only thanks to bubbles. Close quote. Senator, the new normal is two or two and a half percent growth 
you Republicans uh, with the president have got it spiked up over 3%, but it's going to fall back to the new normal. You're just creating a temporary bubble. So come on, fess up. Senator? Um, you know, I think that is exactly what a lot of folks uh, had started to think. And by the way, not just liberal Democrats, but frankly, uh, Republicans and others thinking, and by the way, you say two and two and a half, uh, one and a half to two. I mean, the Congressional Budget Office projects that the growth for the next 10 years will be 1.9%. That's what we had to work with. And by the way, that's why this tax reform proposal, I believe, will result in the economic growth that will make it so that it actually is not a tax cut in the end in terms of revenue to the federal government, a 1% increase in that GDP from 1.9% to 2.9% is $2.7 trillion. That's as compared to the $1 trillion I talked about earlier. And even in this town, that counts as real money. It counts as real money, and it's revenue, but it's revenue through growth. So if you increase the economic growth only 0.4% over that 10-year period because of the tax reform proposal, it actually makes up for the so-called tax cut that Democrats are concerned about. So we can't resign ourselves to that kind of depressing future. And Paul Krugman, Nobel Prize winner, by the way, he'll tell you, um, I just think that's wrong. I think we have enormous opportunity in this economy to grow more. Our productivity is still relatively low. One of the things that's exciting about this tax bill, and which will have the biggest, longest-term impact, as important as the individual cuts are for working families in Ohio, as important as this evidence we're seeing now, the bonuses and so on, the longer-term effect is investment. And it's investment in equipment and in technology that'll make our workforce more productive. And again, those economists at Hoover we talked about earlier, they will all tell you what they told me a few months ago as we were putting this bill together. Focus on investment and productivity, because when you get those productivity gains, is when you get back to growth in the two and a half to three and a half percent range, steady growth, rather than this one and a half to two percent range, which makes all the difference in terms of the deficit and the revenue, in terms of poverty, in terms of all the things we care about, allowing Americans once again to think that their kids and grandkids can be better off than them. All right, the budget deal. Earlier this month, President Trump signed a budget deal <clears throat> that includes some 300 billion in new spending over the next two years. In the House, 67 Republicans voted no. And in the Senate, your beloved chamber, where I note that the vote took place at two in the morning, Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky rose to speak. Quote, the reason I'm here tonight is to put people, including Senator Portman, is to put people on the spot. I want them to answer the people at home who say, how come you were against President Obama's deficits and then how come you're for Republican deficits? Close quote. 71 senators voted for this budget deal. You were one of the 71. And you answer your colleague, Senator Paul, how? First, uh, it was essential to pass that budget because of the point that General Mattis, your former colleague at Hoover, made to us behind closed doors and made to the American people in a less specific way uh, in a very public way, which is that we had eroded our military to the point that we literally did not have the ability to project force and to be able to keep the peace through strength, as Ronald Reagan famously said. And um, you know, one thing he told us behind closed doors, uh, which I believe is accurate as to 2017, there were more of our brave men and women in uniform, service members, who lost their lives from accidents last year than from combat. And his point was, we're not prepared. We are not doing the training we should be doing. Uh, we have ships that can't leave the docks uh, because of the lack of funding. 
Um, we have planes that are on the tarmac that can't take off because of the lack of parts. Um, you know, we have a military that frankly is not able to respond to this expanding and very dangerous situation we have in North Korea, Iran, and over half of that 300 Russia, billion, China, it, over half, I don't remember, actually you may know the number, but over half of that 300 billion is for the military. Yes. So right. traditionally, Republicans and Democrats have had this debate over the budget and Republicans uh, have focused on the defense side as I do, and that was my top priority as you can imagine. And Democrats have said fine, but there has to be an equal amount that's spent on the domestic discretionary side on right. you know, dep uh, departments, agencies, social programs, and so on. And under sequestration, as you know, all of that was, was kept under a, um, a discipline ceiling. that allowed yes. us actually to see some savings uh, overall on the appropriation side, which is an untold story, by the way, uh, to the point that the other side of the budget, the mandatory spending side, was growing relative to the GDP and relative to the rest of the budget and continues to. In this case, it wasn't exactly parity. That is, we got more spending in defense than we did in the rest of the budget. And part of the rest of the budget included something that I also think was very important to do, that you and I have talked about at length, which is addressing the opioid crisis. It is not Washington's job to do everything, but when you have a national crisis like this, and you can bring best practices to the states and help the states to be able to respond to it, I think it's very important. So there was $3 billion per year provided for opioid treatment, recovery, prevention. We haven't done this ever. This is historic. Uh, unfortunately, we're back to where we were when Ronald Reagan declared the war on drugs, and Nancy Reagan uh, did such a superb job in increasing the, you know, the, the message of prevention and education. We have a huge crisis where the number one... Which, again, you see when you go home. Leading, number one cause of death in Ohio right. is, is overdoses from opioids. Number one cause of death. And um, so this is something that affects all of us. And by the way, there are many listening to this program who care a lot about the economy. I understand that. And they might think this issue doesn't really affect us. The data is overwhelming that those who are not in the workforce and who we need desperately We've done a good job on regulatory relief, I believe. Right. I think that's one reason to see the economy growing. We've done a good job now on taxes to be able to provide that incentive. It's not a perfect bill, but it's a very good bill, pro-growth. Workforce is one of our huge challenges. Of those who have left the workforce and don't even show up on the unemployment numbers, unfortunately, we have record numbers among men. The labor force participation rate, as your economist at Hoover will call it, is unfortunately, very low for men. Right now, it's historically low. When you can combine men and women, it goes back to the 1970s, a late 70s, a period we don't want to repeat, double-digit unemployment. 50% of those men, roughly, according to some recent studies, are taking pain medication, opioids, on a regular basis. 50%. Think about that. So a conservative estimate taking these studies, Department of Labor has done work on this, the Fed has done work on this, by the way, Jay Powell, the new chairman of the Federal Reserve, and I've talked a lot about this. He's very interested in this issue because he's trying to get more people into the workforce. So this opioid issue, it's affecting all of us, but it is, it, is, it is scary how much it is affecting our ability to bring people sort of out of the shadows and into the workforce to get the dignity and self-respect that comes from work without dealing with this opioid crisis. Rob? So bottom, bottom, bottom line is no. the budget wasn't perfect. I didn't like that the increased spending uh, for many of those domestic initiatives, but overall we had to do this in terms of the defense side, we had to do it to keep government operating, 
And I think on the opioid side, uh, we got to be sure the money is spent properly, which I'm now working on with others. But that's an important national priority. Rob Portman interviewed in 2012 about your tenure as director of OMB. Quote, I was frustrated. I wanted to offer a balanced budget for over five years, but a lot of people didn't. Close quote. OK. You have argued, I think I can sum this up fairly. If I get it wrong, say so. You've argued that the imperative of the moment is growth. It is increased defense spending. It is within growth. This is, as a matter of the budget, it's small, but it's important to you and important to the country dealing with the opioid crisis. Grant every bit of that. When do we get to entitlement reform? Well, first of all, there are two things we have to do. One is to get this economy growing again, and that will create the revenue we talked about through growth. And that's what happened in the late 1990s, the last time we had a balanced budget on a unified basis, as they say, was frankly because of growth. And we were very proud of ourselves in terms of the the spending side, but that's not what really happened. When you look at it, it happened three years early, and it happened because we cut capital gains taxes, and $100 billion showed up in the coffers no one expected. And you had growth, and you had, in the late 1990s John, John Cogan, your friend, yep. my colleague at Hoover, John Cogan, remarked to me, I remember this vividly, during, as George W. Bush was about to take office and we yep. were running a surplus, he said, Peter, here's the definition of a surplus. The money is coming in so fast that even Congress can't spend it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And we spend like drunken sailors, which is an insult to sailors, by the way. Um, but, but, but entitlements, yeah. So we talked earlier about the budget having sort of two areas. One is the domestic spending, more than half of which is defense. And again, we were at a period of time, once again, where we had starved defense to the point that we were uh, risking our own national security and our ability, again, to promote peace through strength. The other part of the budget is the mandatory side, uh, so-called autopilot. In other words, it's not appropriated by Congress every year, as the rest of this is. And that is Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, interest on the debt. Uh, back in the 60s, that was about 25% of the budget. Now it's totally reversed. Now it's almost 75%. It's probably about 70% this year. And if you look at it in any context, including a percent of GDP, it's growing dramatically. 70% of the federal budget on autopilot. autopilot. Now, it doesn't mean the Congress can't act. Obviously, right. these are programs that can be reformed. And everybody knows they have to be. It has to be done on a bipartisan basis, by the way. It simply isn't going to happen on a partisan basis. It has to be something that improves these programs. It has to be something that protects those people in terms of Medicare and Social Security who are already retired. I think that's a given. But can you do some things? Yes, you can. And you know, there are some reforms out there that are important, uh, that are, have been initiated in small ways. There is actually some means testing in Medicare in the budget you talked about. Uh, some additional means testing on Part B and Part D. I support that. Uh, age adjustment, as we're living longer and healthier lives, there's discussion about that. It's, it's not bipartisan necessarily yet, but it can be and should be and will be, I believe, as we look at the options we have. Uh, so there, there are various ways to do this. Ronald Reagan did it last time. The last time it was done in any, any significant way was 1983, where he and Tip O'Neill decided, you know what? We're going to take Social Security and we're going to extend the life by doing a combination of things. And in the 1984 election, you would have thought this would have been terrible politics. In fact, both sides protected the other because it was bipartisan. That was the year, as you may recall, when Ronald Reagan won all but one state. And some say that he could have won that state, but he said, that's, that's Fritz's state. Let's, 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 let's let him have Minnesota. 
So, I mean, I think there is a more partisan atmosphere today. It's going to be harder. But anybody who looks at this seriously understands that we have to reform these important programs, these incredibly important safety net programs, and, and, and we can. We can improve them, and we have to do it in a bipartisan way. And that's how, ultimately, along with growth, and keeping the other spending restrained is important. Of course, there's waste in government. We can do more there. But if you look at it realistically, you know, why do you, why do you rob banks? It's where the money is. If you look at it re realistically, you have to deal with the mandatory spending side. And, um, you know, I, I hope we can do that. It won't happen between now and the 2018 election, but I hope in 2019 that can be something we have a bipartisan commitment to do. Senator, let me, um, something that goes against the grain of senators I know, could I ask for, I'd like to go through a kind of uh, lightning round here, Excellent. by which I mean I'll ask uh, just an issue, and the question is just, legislative movement between now and November, yes or no? Yes. Healthcare? Yes, small. Small pieces, All right. not, the, not the overall piece, but you know, the individual mandate is now gone, which was a significant part, As part of, of the tax reform. Part of the tax reform. Many people don't even know that. By the way, my constituents know it, uh, and they're happy about it. 50% uh, of those people right. in Ohio, uh, actually 80% make less than 50 grand a year who are affected by Immigration? Uh, yes, narrow. DACA will be addressed. Uh, I don't think it'll be the broad immigration reform package that you know, others would like to see, but we need to deal with DACA, and I think it'll happen. The Democrats will get DACA, and they'll give the Republicans what in return? Some additional funding for border security, and okay. I think that's the likely result, and some of us have legislation to do that. Trade. Earlier this month, the Commerce Department, Wilbur Ross, Secretary of Commerce, the Commerce Department recommended wide-ranging restrictions on steel and aluminum imports. The administration has already imposed tariffs on a certain goods, including washing machines, I note that Whirlpool has factories in one, two, three, four, five towns in Ohio, but still only on certain goods. But restrictions on steel and aluminum would, of course, ripple through the whole economy. Wall, the Wall Street Journal, quote, the steel and aluminum industries are benefiting enormously from Mr. Trump's economic agenda. Growth. Why would Mr. Trump undercut his achievements with trade barriers? Close quote. Senator, are you with de the Department of Commerce? or the Wall Street Journal? I'm, I don't know where the Department of Commerce ends up because they've given the president various options. Um, and we finally got the report last week, which I was really happy to see, because we had no data to be able to you know, make these decisions. Uh, let me tell you an example in Ohio that troubles me a lot. Uh, electrical steel is a very important product for transformers and therefore for our, our grid. It's an essential material. The last electrical steel manufacturer in Ohio is, and in the country, is AK Steel. Their plant's in Zanesville, Ohio. Uh, they report to me, um, which my staff has looked into, and it's true, that there has been a 101% increase in imports of electrical steel over the last year. The last year? The last year. Uh, they indicate to me that they will not be able to continue to produce electrical steel if this continues, because they can't compete with these low-priced imports. So 232 is meant for national security reasons. I think this is a national security reason. Now, that's a very small part of the market. It's a tiny part of the market. And so my answer is, as I have said to the president publicly, because he brought the media in when he met with us, which was interesting. Um, we got off track a few times, but we ended up focusing mostly on steel and aluminum. But I said, you know, it ought to be targeted as to country and as to product. So it doesn't have that broad-based negative impact you're talking about on those who take steel and process it into something else, like automobiles, which are also made in Ohio. Uh, but we do need to protect our steel industry, and particularly 
things like electrical steel. The other one is, is you know, the oil country products, the, the pipe and tubes. And there again, there's been a substantial increase. I think it's about a 72% increase just in the last year of that product. Often foreign exporters getting under the wire because they know something's going to happen, which is one reason, you know, we ought to do something, not just announce we're going to do, but do it more quickly so that doesn't increase the exports coming into our country. But the bottom line is, you know, we need to have a strong economy and steel and aluminum is important to that to keep the prices, but, the, but it ought to be fair. China's overcapacity is driving this, as you know, primarily. Right. And every country in the world realizes it. China was probably 15% of the steel production uh, 14 years ago. It has increased eight times since then. Today, most of the steel in the world is made in China. Uh, they do not have the market for it, so they send it to other countries uh, that in turn send it to us where they send it directly to us. Uh, so, you know, they subsidize it. And they sell it below its cost, which means dumping. Right. And those are things that under the international rules are illegal. So we do need to deal with those overcapacity issue. Can, and can if we don't, uh, you know, we'll find ourselves potentially without an industry that actually, you know, is in some areas, like electrical steel, already in risk. Let me, risk is, this of being a fair, lost. is this a fair summary of your position? I, Rob Portman, am a free trader, and you can see that by examining my speeches going way back, in particular in my time as U.S. trade rep, but I am also the senator from Ohio, and when an industry in my state gets hurt, it is my job to pay attention. Fair? Uh, not necessarily. Ah. Um, I would say I'm a, I'm a balanced trader. I think free trade has gotten us to the point where if you're a pure free trader, you wouldn't care about the electrical steel industry because that's not consistent with free trade. True. And I do, and I think we all should. So I think it needs to be balanced and I think it needs to be fair in the sense that we have rules and we ought to follow those rules. We should not unfairly restrict trade and we should expand exports dramatically in this country. We way under export. Uh, we should have more trade agreements. I'm a strong supporter of increasing the number of trade agreements and ensuring we don't walk away from the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA even though it gets a bad name in some states like mine, it's incredibly important to Ohio and to our country. We only have trade agreements with 10% of the global GDP, and yet we send 47% of our exports to that 10% of the world. And so to blame trade agreements, which some do, including in the Trump administration, I think is a big mistake. All right. And by the way, from Ohio, our number one export market is Canada. Number two is Mexico. We send over 50% of our exports just to those two countries. So we can do much more, Peter, to expand exports, knock down barriers to our workers, our farmers, our service providers. And we also ought to, yes, allow fair trade to come into our country, but we ought not to allow people to dump their product in our country, which results in losing jobs that otherwise would be there through fair competition. If it's fair, if it's a level playing field, I think we can compete and win now, particularly with a better tax code, a better regulatory system, and a much better energy situation now and into the future. Gun control. Legislation between now and November? Yes. I, I know this is, in, I, this is a recent issue. The shootings are still recent. I know you, I yeah. believe you're, you haven't worked out your own position in detail yet, but you think some legislation or just executive action? Uh, I think both. I think both. All I mean, right. it's so tragic what has happened recently in Florida and the, something will happen and and the other shootings I think something will happen and All I right. think I think there's a consensus building around keeping people who shouldn't have guns from getting them uh, meaning that the background check system the national system has lots of leakage and I think there's other there's other areas where you can find consensus as well North Korea you sit on the committee on foreign relations 
you are acutely aware that every chief executive since Bill Clinton has attempted to negotiate away the North Korean nuclear program, and everyone has failed. And you will be acutely aware that intelligence estimates for at least a decade now have underestimated the speed and the scope of the North Korean nuclear program. You get the classified stuff. Of course, you can't share that with us. Do President Trump, Secretary of Defense James Mattis, have the situation in hand? <laughs> no. <laughs> but it's not their fault. Uh, it's the fact that you have a, a government in North Korea that you know, has played not just the United States, but I would say the global community like a fiddle. In other words, they have demanded certain concessions in exchange for talks. You have the talks, and then uh, they don't keep their commitment. And, and this happened to President Clinton. It happened to President Bush. It happened to President Obama. And uh, you know they're not to be trusted. And I'm encouraged by three things. One, the UN putting sanctions in place. First time we've ever had these kind of global sanctions right. put in place That's by the United new. Nations. And they've done it twice, and they're now tightening those sanctions. And I, I think there is room to do even more, particularly on the financial side, that would right. really help, particularly with regard to a handful of Chinese companies that continue to trade with North Korea. But that's, that's encouraging. Second, um, the North Koreans are interested in talking. And the United States, typically saying, uh, we'll give you concessions for that, is saying, we're happy to talk, uh, but we're not looking for concessions to talk, because that hasn't worked. So we're learning from our mistakes, finally. And I think that's, that's very positive. And then finally, and I think perhaps most significantly, for the first time you know, in our adult lives. Uh, which, which are getting to have lasted a long time A now. long time now. <laughs> uh, I do think you have, well, I'm saying since the Korean War, I, I think there's been a sense by China that the worst outcome would be American troops on their border. In other words, a reunification or anything that resolved this issue in North Korea would be negative for them because just as you have troops today in South Korea, the Republic of Korea, you could have American troops on their border in North Korea. I think that thinking has changed. And I think the thinking now is perhaps the worst situation is the chaos that would result from an unthinkable nuclear war and the refugees that would be streaming across that border right. from North Korea, starving. And so I think they're thinking differently about it, and whether it's blocking the exports uh, from North Korea or not providing imports of coal or some of the other sanctions that I think can be tightened even further, they're beginning to think about it differently. And that's very significant because we have so little leverage. Right. Same with the other countries around the world. China at least has some leverage. Right. So I'm, I'm hopeful that even in the next few months, we'll see some talks. I'm for talks, actually. I'm not for making concessions to have talks. But I think we should be talking. Two last questions. Donald Trump and the character question. Hoover fellow Victor Davis Hanson on Donald Trump's first year in office, quote, an impressive record of achievement. The stock market and small business confidence are at record highs. Trump has now ended 66 regulations for everyone he has added and cut the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21% and the ISIS caliphate is for all purposes now extinct." Close quote. Add to that Neil Gorsuch and a dozen very good judges now nominated to and confirmed, Circuit thanks court. to the Senate, on the federal appellate courts. And yet, and yet, and yet, he's Donald Trump. <laughs> October 2016, the Access Hollywood tapes are released and Rob Portman puts on his website a statement, 
I had hoped to support the candidate for president my party nominated, but I can no longer support Donald Trump. I will be voting Mike Pence for president." Close quote. Policy matters to you. You've just demonstrated that. But character matters to you, too. How does the Republican Party advance Donald Trump's agenda without seeming to excuse or to uh, e even in some way embrace his failings? Well, I think you are honest. And I, and I think um, when you agree, you not only let it be known, but you work with the administration to accomplish great things, including you mentioned the regulatory front, where we've worked closely with them on a number of regulatory issues that are unprecedented. I mean, we had one example over the last couple of decades of using these Congressional Review Acts to eliminate a regulation. Right. We've done 14 in the last year. Uh, and you're right, Donald Trump's philosophy in the agency is if you want to put out a new regulation, you have to get rid of two, which changes the whole thinking <laughs> of the bureaucracy. And, and so even we, when he doesn't have political appointees, he's been able to push through a different mentality, which is we're going to work as a partner to get businesses into compliance, including small businesses, because there are rules that need to be followed. But we're not going to seek to find them out of compliance so we can right. punish them. It's a different thinking. So he's done some things that are very significant that are, where I've supported him, including obviously on the pro-growth tax reform. But where he has said or done things that I disagree with, I also speak up. And I can give you two dozen examples of that. But um, because I do, as I did with Access Hollywood, I, I do find that you know, we have a extremely politically divided country right now. So you're right, small business optimism based on a recent NFIB survey is at all times high. Uh, people feel better about not just their future, but the future for their kids in terms of, their, of the economy. But they don't feel good about our country overall because they have very strong views either on the right or on the left, and that division is growing and the gap is growing. So, you know, some of my constituents uh, tell me when I'm home, as they did this weekend when I spoke at an annual County Lincoln Day dinner, you know, why don't you always support the president? no matter what, because he's the Republican president. He was nominated by us. He won Ohio. Um, and then that same day, uh, people say to me, why are you supporting the president? <laughs> because, you know, he's saying or doing these things. And my answer is very simple. It's, you, again, going back to my initial comment, you're honest. You just say where you, where you land, and you be an independent voice for your state or your district. And I think that serves the country best. Last question. <clears throat> 18 months ago, you had, roughly, you had a decision to make. Uh, you could have honorably ended one term in the Senate and a long and very distinguished, remarkably distinguished. If you'd known him in college, you'd be astonished. <laughs> <laughs> career in public service. And you could have begun spending more time with your family and, frankly, joining a few boards and expanding your income. And here you are, you've just flown in from Cincinnati to be with us in Washington. You've got an event in New York. You resume, you go back into session. What the, what are you doing? Why, why did you run for re-election? What keeps Rob Portman at it? You, you've missed a few things uh, about public service that make it even harder. I mentioned the division today uh, in my office on Friday, we received a letter, and when one of my 
incredibly talented young staffers, um, a guy named Drew Shaw, who's a great kid, um, opened up this package. Luckily, he was doing the proper procedure, which is he had it in a box, which helps to ensure that the fumes from the letter, you know, are vacuumed out rather than toward him, and white powder went everywhere. And there was panic in the office, as you can imagine, and the police were called. And it appears now that it is cornstarch, but they won't tell us for sure until probably Tuesday, which, you know, is unnerving for me, of course. So I called Drew immediately and uh, tell him how much I appreciate his service and hope he's okay and he's good, he's calm. But you can imagine how this rattles our, our office. And, and here's a kid who, you know, wants to devote his life to public service. That's his goal, not necessarily elected office. And he has to put it, and the letter, by the way, uh, contained language that I can't repeat uh, because otherwise, you know, you guys would cut me out of un uncommon knowledge. Uh, but really unfortunate, you know, just, uh, again, this division is real and it's on both sides. So public service today is a little, and I use just one example, but Peter, it is an honor. It is an absolute honor despite some of the sacrifices that everybody makes in this business, uh, to be able to represent your neighbor and to be able to help make a difference in people's lives. I mean, I, I can't tell you, I feel so blessed to have the opportunity. I've devoted a lot of time to the pro-growth tax reform, not because, frankly, I'm trying to help big business. They'll be fine, the boardrooms will be fine, but it's the workers I know who I grew up with at Portman Equipment Company, which was a small family business, you know, the mechanic who's on the line and, uh, you know, they want to work hard and play by the rules, but they hope to be able to get ahead and they hope to be able to have their kids have a better opportunity than they've had. And that's not been the case. For the last couple of decades, actually, in Ohio, wages have been flat, and yet expenses are up, and Washington seems to ignore it. And so the reason you do these things, like the tax reform or the regulatory relief, is because of that guy, or his wife, or that woman who works in receivables, who has done all the right things and yet can't get ahead. And they deserve our help. And then poverty, uh, I think, is driven so much by these issues we talked about earlier, the opioid crisis, also the prison population, people getting out, 95% of prisoners are getting out. We have an un, a record number of people in prison and they have a felony conviction, they can't get a job. That's another thing that's driving this, this unemployment number, um, people who are outside of the workforce. And, and I've been able, through the Second Chance Act I authored, I've been able, through some of the opioid work I've done, to actually to really help some of those people. On Thursday, I was at a treatment center in Ohio, and some of the funds that we sent here from Washington went to leverage private sector dollars, which I love seeing that, seed money to leverage private sector dollars to start something entirely new, which is one emergency room in a large city in Ohio, Columbus, that focuses on overdoses rather than going to a dozen different emergency rooms that also have to cover gunshot wounds and right. traffic accidents and so on and have a different setup. This is just focused on Narcan and saving someone's life by using this miracle drug that reverses the effect of an overdose. But now we have in this emergency room, right next room, like in the same building, 50 beds for treatment. Because the huge gap right now is people overdose, your firefighters, police officers are saving their lives as one of the people who works there told me uh, this week, often people were going out in the parking lot and shooting up again. Now that's dramatic, but certainly within a week, sometimes within a day, people were coming back again and again and again and not getting into treatment. 
80% of the people now that have come into that emergency room, it's only been open for a month, they've had 103 people come through already, 80% of them have elected to go into treatment. That number is exactly the reverse of what it is in most places, which 20% at best. So I got to meet some of those people. And I met a young man who has been an addict for seven years. And he's never sought treatment before. And he's gotten a job, lost a job, broken up with his wife, you know, lost his family. I mean, all the things, you know, tearing apart these families is a huge part of this. Committed crimes, you know, to, to feed your habit. I mean, that's the number one cause of crime in Ohio is people who are addicted, you know, shoplifting, stealing, fraud. They've got to figure out how to find four or 500 bucks a day to feed their habit. This young man is now clean. He's gone through detox. Uh, you know, it's only been a few weeks. He's very proud of his being sober for 21 days. He's now researching what he's going to do next. He's going to go into a sober living facility. He has chosen uh, to leave the medication-assisted therapy is on now, which is a big step. Um, I believe he's going to make it. I mean, I like, looked, looked into his eyes, and this is a guy that's got unbelievable promise. He's smart. He actually, you know, has a good education, but he fell into this trap that so many people have. And by the way, four out of five people who die of overdoses in Ohio started on prescription drugs, many of them legally, because of an accident or an injury, something changed in their brain. Others, you know, did it to try to find the high at a party or something, but this young man is a great example of that, of someone who can achieve his God-given ability now because of something that Washington helped do. I mean, we provided the seed money for this new experiment. And again, it's not just about money, it's providing the money in the right way. So it's, you know, it's an evidence-based program that actually works, not just throwing money at something. So that's why it's worth it. And I feel honored and privileged to be able to do it. Senator Rob Portman of the great state of Ohio, thank you. For the, for the Hoover Institution and Uncommon Knowledge, I'm Peter Robinson. Thank you. Now applaud. <laughs>